Welcome back to the Para Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today it is my honour to have the legend Lex Gillette with me. Lex is a visually impaired track and field athlete. He's a five-time Paralympic silver medalist. He's a four-time world champion and the current world record holder for the long jump. He also is a TED Talk speaker and the author of the book Fly. Welcome to the podcast, Lex. Hello. Hey, Liz. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. And you? I'm doing fantastic. Awesome. Lex, can you give us a little history of yourself, your impairment, and how you got into long jump? Yes, I am. <clears throat> I'm originally from Raleigh, North Carolina, so the east coast of the U.S., United States. And I was born with sight up until I was eight years old. I could see really well. I was outside playing around with friends and playing video games, riding bicycles, things like that. There was one day I had come home from school, went through my normal routine that night as I was sitting inside of the bathtub. That's when I noticed that my sight was failing me. My hands were starting to look blurry. I looked up into the, the, the lights in the ceiling and they were looking faint. I get out of the mm. tub, hop onto the bathroom counter, look in the mirror. And that's when I, I really knew something was wrong because it was it was difficult for me to see my reflection in the glass. My mom had taken me to the doctor. We had an examination and through that through that examination, they saw that I was suffering from retina detachments. Which that was, it was a random occurrence. It wasn't, there wasn't any type of tragic accident or, or anything along those lines that we could point to, to say, this is what caused the issue. Hmm. And, that, and any genetic background, like did, no family history? Uh, we do have a history of visual impairment, but my mom and I, I think are the only ones who have what I would classify as a, a more severe cases. So my mom has glaucoma. She still mm -hmm. has usable sight. So she's not totally blind. I was the one who luck of the draw had retina detachments, which retina detachments, to my knowledge, that's not a, that's not uh, like hereditary. You think about retina detachments, you think about some sort of blunt force to the head that could cause mm -hmm. them to detach. Mm -hmm. Or you think about you just go through the aging process and things start to deteriorate from a health standpoint and you might might experience retina detachments. But again, you know, outside of those areas, it was like, oh, well, how, like, what, what caused this? And so mm -hmm. I mentioned my mom having glaucoma and all of the others on, on my mom's side of the family. When I say we, we've all had some sort of uh, bout with it, well, a number of us, it would be you know, people needing glasses when they're, yeah. you know, younger in life or, you know, something like that. I feel like at this point in our world, you know, wearing glasses really isn't a big deal because <laughs> um, <No. laughs> you're able Pretty to, it, yeah, like you're able to, to have your sight corrected. You know, you're ho hopefully you're able to have it corrected. So, yeah, but me, I'm the one with the, the most severe visual impairment. I basically can't mm -hmm. see anything at all. And we had a number of operations to try and fix that, but they were all unsuccessful. And after the last operation, that was when 
the doctor said that there wasn't anything else that they, anything else they could do to help my sight. And they said that I would eventually become blind. Mm-hmm. And, and so what age did that occur for you? That was, I had my last operation when I was eight. Mm-hmm. Then it was a gradual decrease over, I'm going to say five to six months of gradual sight loss. And then you finally wake up and you're not able to see much of anything. Okay. And so you were probably, what, early nine-year-old? By that that point, point, I probably, yeah. Yep. Mm. So and and so, how did you get into long jump? I got into long jump through a, a teacher in high school. So I had a teacher of the visually impaired, someone who makes sure that you have everything that you need from an accommodation standpoint, so that the academic experience is a great one. Making mm-hmm. sure I have my computer with the speech software on it, making sure that I have books in Braille, making sure all of the handouts and textbooks, making sure they're in an accessible format. This person, mm-hmm. Mr. Whitmer, he was also responsible for going to PE class with me. In PE okay. class, he was making sure that all of the activities were adapted in a way that I would be able to participate. One of the activities that we had to do one day was was the standing long jump. I was in public school, so I'm, I maintained the, the, the mainstream school setting, mm-hmm. classroom setting. We had to participate in this long jump. I ended up being the best in our freshman class and one of the best in the entire school. So from a standstill, mm. I could I could jump ten feet or you know over over three meters. And so wow, my my classmates, my peers, they were oh my gosh, this is so crazy! Like <laughs> well, we've never seen this before. And, and mind you, again, since I was in public school, we probably had about. I'm going to say five to 10 blind or visually impaired students and everyone else could see. We had about 1,500 mm-hmm. kids in our school. So naturally, mm-hmm. they see someone with that type of ability. It was mind boggling to them. Yeah. My teacher, yeah. then he told me about the, the Paralympics and being able to travel the world and win gold medals and records and all of those types of things. So at, at 14 years old, you... All right. Well, where do I sign up? Oh. This sounds fantastic. <laughs> and yeah, so that that was basically the beginning. And from there, he he showed me everything about the long jump, you know, physically showing me the runway and how wide the runway was and how long it was, and showing me the takeoff board that's in the ground, showing me the sand pit, how wide it is, how long it is, and that was really important for me mm-hmm. because although I have not been able to see in a while. Having had some level of sight helps out because I have a reference as to what certain things look like. So when I can yep. layer that with, oh, okay, well, I can touch this and you, you can create those images in your mind. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you compete with a guide to assist you. So just run through for, for us what that looks like in terms of the reality in a competition, say. Your guide would be standing at the somewhere in the vicinity of the takeoff board. They stand there. Well, they first direct you to your start mark. So you know Mm -hmm. your approach, how much real estate that you need to get from point A to point B. They will direct you to your start mark. Make sure that you're positioned in the correct in the correct area of the runway, probably in the middle. Mm -hmm. 
and then they will jog to the opposite end and set up behind the takeoff board. They will start to clap and yell some sort of mm-hmm. some sort of uh, you know call or they'll have a certain cadence, clapping their hands, yelling, and mm-hmm. you use that audible audible sound, those cues to navigate from where you are to the takeoff board. And so as with anything, you practice it so much that it becomes muscle memory. So the guide is Mm -hmm. there for definitely to let you know where you need to run, but for safety as well. So if you veer off to the left or right hand side and you veer off to a point of no return, then your guide will most likely tell you to stop. And then they'll set you up again so that you can start to jump over. Yep. Unless you veer when you take off, which unfortunately you experienced once yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. at, a, at a world yeah, championships we- with well done to you for finishing that event. That's That was, if anyone wants to see that, I'm sure there's plenty of um, uh, for videos sure. on YouTube. <laughs> there, yes, there are a lot of videos out there. And that's, I mean, that's just a part of the, it's a part of the event at the end of the day. Sometimes you get inside of these stadiums and there's, different challenges as it relates to the sound. So your guide might be clapping Mm. and it's echoing inside of the stadium or it could be really loud with the crowd or it could be really Mm. windy outside. So you really have to get on the same page with your guide and, and really let them know what exactly it is that you're listening to and what you're hearing so that they can make any, any adjustments. Adjustment. Yep. Yeah. And do you use that audio cue to, to navigate in daily life? Like are you someone, I know you don't use a, a guide dog, you use your cane, but do you also use that auditory kind of echo and and the sound of things around you as part of your day-to-day navigation? Yeah. I think when you couple the, the sound with the feel, that's what really, at least from me speaking personally, those two things really helped me to to navigate and capture an image of what it is that that I where it is that I might be navigating. So you think about mm-hmm. walking around the the training center, Chula Vista Elite Athlete Training Center, where we spend a lot of our time. And when you're sliding your cane from left to right, you are number one, you have a, a the ability to feel gain information from what that cane is is giving you so if it's sliding across a surface that's smooth that might tell you that mm-hmm. oh okay well I'm in the I'm approaching the the parking lot or I'm in the parking lot yeah when you're walking on the sidewalk where it's more of a cobblestone your cane is mm-hmm. there's a you know it's, it's it's running across that surface so you're able to feel the the different um, like the edges of each kind of you know brick or stone. So that lets you know that oh okay well I'm on the on the uh, the the sidewalk here. So I think with all of those things that you think about sounds, hearing footsteps, hearing the echoes of those footsteps off of different buildings or different structures, mm-hmm. that lets you know that you're in a certain a certain area. And yes, based off of all of that information, you're able to to understand where you are in space and understand how you should proceed forward. Yep. Cool. So I'm going to focus a little bit on your training at the moment. So what would a typical week's training look like for you? So you're, it's, it's February, which means that you're in, what, mid, 
mid-prep for competition hasn't started yet, correct? Yes, yeah. So still kind of in that building phase, if you will, trying to establish that foundation. So I took a, a, a little longer break after Tokyo than normal. So I'm still, I would still be identified as, as being in that fall training, if you will. A lot of running, mm -hmm. a lot of, of volume in the weight room, and really just trying to establish that, that strong base. Take a, a Monday, for example, where that's one of the few days where I have two workouts in the day, one on the track and one mm -hmm. in the gym. Wake up, go grab some food come back to the room, rest for a few minutes, get myself prepared physically and mentally, go down to the track a few minutes early just to get down there and shoot the breeze and, and joke with teammates, things like that. Mm -hmm. We typically will start around 11 o'clock, do a warm up, nice long warm up, 45, 50 ish minutes, and then we'll move into the workout itself. It could be anything from being on the actual runway and working on run-throughs, which is me working on running in a straight line and having the same cadence and rhythm when I'm running down the runway to ensure that I, mm -hmm. I jump from the same spot, that takeoff board. Yep. It could be different drills, box jumps. After the long jump session, then we'll do an we'll go into a, a running workout and that could be anything from short sprints, 60 meter repeats or 150 meter repeats running hills. After that workout, we'll, we'll cool down, go to the cafeteria, get you a little bit of food to, to help mm -hmm. replenish what you might've lost and then head over to the, to the gym, lift some weights, mm -hmm. Could be power clean, squats. It just depends on what's going on uh, for that day. And once we're done with that, I'll do a little rolling out and drink water, go to the cafeteria, grab a chocolate milk or something, and then head back mm -hmm. to head back home and relax. Get ready to do it again the next day. <laughs> and in the gym, one of the things, obviously, as a long jumper, it's, you know, you want to be powerful and yet quite lean. And, and that's something that you, you're pretty good at naturally holding your, your leanness, but you tend to, when you have longer breaks, you tend to lose a bit of that muscle mass. Right. So how much weight would you put on over this phase generally? Like give us a, a reference point of how many pounds you'd put on. I would say, goodness gracious. So in the years that, I feel like I would come back in in that 168ish 69 weight. So high 160s at the beginning of the the season. Going through this first phase, I could easily get up to 175. Yeah. Which I'm pretty comfortable with that. I think over the years it's it's kind of it's, it's worked out well for me. So, you know, around mm -hmm. that 175ish give or take maybe a pound or two heavier. But yep. again, once we get out of this phase and get a little more technical, then... It comes uh, down again. <laughs> yes. Then the, the, the weight <laughs> starts to it starts to shed. And by the time competitions are... Those first few competitions, I still might be a little heavy. So seven, 173 or 
still maybe holding on to that that 74-ish. But once we get into the peak of the season, I'm probably going to be around that 171-ish. Yeah, that seems to be a good jumping weight for you. Yep. Yep. And how tall are you? I am six feet one. What is that? One meters 83 or something? 183, yep. Yeah, thereabouts. Yep. Cool. Just so that people have got a, an image in their mind of, of what you look like. Yeah, I'm a tall, <laughs> you know. Lanky. Lean, I wouldn't say lanky. I'm going to say uh, I'm, a, I'm a gazelle. Yeah. I, I'd call you lanky legs. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm slender. But you, you certainly lean. Yeah. That is definitely one thing. With I don't know that I've ever seen an more than a couple of ounces of body fat on you over the years that I've known you. I felt after Tokyo, I felt like I gained a lot of weight, but <laughs> it wasn't when I when I got my I did my skin folds for the first time. It wasn't wasn't too bad. Good, good. So let's go back to your eating. So you said that you get up, you you go down and have breakfast. Give us an idea of what you'd have for breakfast. <laughs> It is. So, of course, it depends on the workout. If it's a really hard workout, Mm -hmm. then it's probably going to be oatmeal. I like to use in the past. I would (laughs) I was the one. Let me get the brown sugar, the the regular (laughs) sugar, the cinnamon. I think nowadays I'm I'm converted to more of let me get the oatmeal plain and I'll throw in some strawberries or other berries or bananas some almonds or some sort of, you know, whatever nuts that they have down mm-hmm. at the facility have some some raisins in there as well. So using those things as you know, have that natural sugar sweet and it still tastes, yep. tastes good. I might also have a half of a bagel with some peanut butter or a slice of toast. Mm-hmm. Other days it could be, it could be a little bit of fruit, some scrambled eggs, some potatoes, some sort of protein uh, outside of the egg. So maybe some some bacon or or sausage. You know, not not a lot, but definitely like to throw that in there as well. I like my yogurt and stuff too. So it's yep. it's a combination of all of those things. But again, it just kind of depends on the the workout. What the session is going to be? Yep. Yeah. And then what about lunch? Lunch is it depends on the day. So if I have my, my two-a-days and say I'll have an hour in between the morning session and the afternoon session, I would probably do a smoothie and mm-hmm. and something like, like a serving of, who knows, maybe they have some brown rice down there or a chicken breast, something to where I I can coat my stomach, if you will, but not fill myself up. Just because yeah, yeah. I want to got a hard sure session. <laughs> I got another session. Yeah. I don't want to be sleepy. So um, yeah. yeah, I would do something like that. Probably some some veg- light veggies in there as well, and then go to the to the weight room. And after yeah. the weight room, I would typically do a a chocolate milk. Mm-hmm. If they have some some items out there. Typically when we get out of the weight room, the cafeteria is closed, the hotline is closed. So that leaves us with, we can only access the sandwich line or the salad bar or the yogurts, granola bars, things like that. So I'll definitely get Mm -hmm. that, that chocolate milk in so I can replenish my body with 
with those uh, sugars and, and carbs that I might have lost. And I might try to throw a, a, a PB&J in there or something along those lines yeah. just to mm-hmm. make sure I can then get come to back. dinner. Yeah, and then come back for dinner. And so dinner would be your kind of bigger meal of the day yes. generally? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm ready to eat by then. So hopefully they have some good, some good stuff down there. And you yeah. know, from our time working together, I've always, it's so easy for me to, oh, we got some chicken, we got some potatoes, <laughs> oh, we got some broccoli. And it's so easy for me to, to eat the same things. Yeah. But of course, in our work together, you learn that, all right, let's get some variety in here. They, they got some fish on the line as well. They have some some beef here you don't mm-hmm. have to eat the same protein all of the time in fact <laughs> like, get you get your brown rice get you some potatoes some sweet potatoes some carrots some broccoli some beets some you know all of those types of things and so that's that's one one aspect that i'm always trying to make sure that i work on because i want to get all of those good nutrients and, and vitamins and whatever else is in there for me. Glad to hear you've learned something from me. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I did. <laughs> <laughs> now, you've lived at the and trained at the Chula Vista Training Centre for quite a long time now, and that means that all of the food is provided for you. So explain how that works for you in terms of your food choices. Yes, so as, a, as an athlete who's blind, you walk down to the calf and they have they have workers inside of the facility who help you make those, who help you get your food. Mm-hmm. So we walk through the line and it could be, okay, well, what are, you, what, are you, what are you wanting today? And we'll stop by the fruit, which is one of the first things that you get to the fruit in the, the sandwich bar. So if you want mm-hmm. something along those lines, they'll, they'll help you get those things. Go to the salad bar, do the same, move on to the, to the hotline and the grill same thing so they're describing everything if you want very little detail then they won't give you that detail but if you want Mm -hmm. very specific information around calories and you know what exactly is in the food they will offer that information to you as well so you have those athletes Mm -hmm. who you know counting the calories and have to be a lot more strict so um Yeah. yeah the workers there are really really important to our ability to be the best that that we can be as athletes because you want to make sure that you're fueling yourself with the right things and also making sure that if you do have a strict diet that you're not going over your suggested serving sizes serving yeah perfect and do you get out to supermarkets much to buy snacks or um, out to restaurants like do you sort of get out much independently? Not as much right now, which I, I definitely like to get out there. But in today's day and age, the mm. Amazon deliveries and the Instacarts <laughs> and all of these different apps make it easy for mm-hmm. different, you know, for you to be able to get certain things delivered to you. So, and that actually works out really well because you're, your phone, yeah, you might have an iPhone, Android, not sure, but there's usually some sort of accessibility feature on the smartphone that reads the contents of the screen so that once you log on to, say, the 
A-M-A-Z-O-N app. I had to say that because I have a, a speaker. <laughs> so when you log on to that app, now your phone is reading to you the the different items. It'll, it'll tell okay. you, you can get a pound of green apples or you can get, yeah. you know, oatmeal. And it has, more times than not, it has the the nutritional facts for those items as well in the app. But what I will say, <clears throat> if it's not on the app and say you're just comfortable with the the titles of whatever it is that you're buying, oh, okay, well, I know I'm getting the, the Quaker Oats or whatever mm-hmm. brand. Once it arrives to your home and say you do want nutritional facts around that, there's different applications that you can download on the smartphone that will... Tapping into that that AI, the artificial intelligence piece, there's yeah. apps out there where you can open it, point your camera at the back of a box, and it will read aloud what the 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 camera is capturing in terms of okay. the, the text. So the ingredients the and the, the yeah. yep. yep, yep, yeah. Yeah, so that's become much more accessible for you over the – have you noticed big changes over the last, say, 10 to 12 years in terms of the way you can use your phone to support you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. So we just talked about the being able to, to look at ingredients and facts and things like that. I've certainly used it for that before. Even when you mm-hmm. think about it from a recovery standpoint and certain devices that are out there that help us there is a, I had gotten a, a Normatec machine mm-hmm. about a, a year or so ago. And so the updated ones, there's an, an app and you can connect the app to the Normatec and can, can, can control it from your phone, which is really oh, good wow. for me because the, the later versions of the machine itself, it's a touchscreen. There's oh. no type of audible feedback that's offered so for me to be able to use it control it from my phone that's that's huge that's massive yeah yeah and you also have an app that you've been using or i had used in the past when you're out and about that you can actually call up someone or talk to someone if you're in an unusual environment and they can help navigate you around, correct? Yep, yep. So it's called Ira, which is spelled A-I-R-A. And it's actually pretty Mm -hmm. huge in Australia too. But you use your, you download the app and you can press the call button, which within the app, you're connected to a human agent that's remote. Mm -hmm. They're able to see through your camera and give you audible feedback on absolutely anything. It could be helping you mm. navigate from your home to a local post office or a local grocery store. It could be you asking them to read the ingredients of of a particular food, particular item. It could also mm. be you asking for those ingredients and then asking them to help you prepare it. Like I've used them to, okay. to help yep. me cook food as well. So, because sometimes awesome. when you're cooking different different proteins and things like that, you obviously want to make sure that it's cooked and that it's cooked all the way through. Yeah, right. Yep. So having them there for those types of things has been really huge. Wow! And you enjoy cooking? Yeah, I like cooking. I learned when I was when I was a kid. My mom was mm-hmm. one of those people who. You know, you need to learn how to do all of these things so that you can 
you can be independent and not have mm-hmm. to depend on on everyone else for things that quite frankly you should do on your own and yeah. so i learned how to cook at an at an early age and of course when i say cook you know scrambling eggs or yeah cooking vegetables or i certainly wasn't frying chicken or anything like that like that or making mac and cheese or anything like that was that's for the 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 pros um, <laughs> but, but you uh, could prepare food in a way that you could sustain absolutely. yourself absolutely yeah yeah yeah, yeah. good woman your mum yeah totally totally <laughs> Yeah, you talk you talk about her a lot in in your book Fly. Can you tell us how you get access to the book? Yes, you can get it off of Amazon, any of the the major online bookstores. It is available. You search Fly Lex Gillette or Fly, you know, find your own wings and soar above life's challenges. And yeah, it is is there for public consumption my goal was to write it and for whoever who reads it they will be able to get something from it yeah so it was a a, it's a a great it's a great little book i i really enjoyed reading it even though i'd known you for quite a long time by then i learned quite a few things right right Lex, just uh, I guess staying on the the nutrition theme, I, one thing I wanted to ask you is how do you know when you're adequately hydrated? So most people we say you know check your urine color, and if it's clear in color, then you you're hydrated. But obviously you can't see that. So what signs and, and signals do you get when you're when you're well hydrated or when you're dehydrated? Well. Three things. The first thing would be kind of the the frequency, making <laughs> sure that I'm drinking enough water. I know that if I have not, you know, if I have not used the bathroom, but you know, let's just say two or three times a day, that's probably mm-hmm. not good. <laughs> um, no, I would agree. Yeah. <laughs> It's probably not a good thing. Um, so making sure that I get that, continue to have the, the water on hand so that I can make sure that, yes, I am, in fact, hydrated. Then number two, just the like the smell. And I know you can't always base it off of that, depending on what you eat, asparagus, for example. Mm. But for the most part, I feel like it, it won't have a kind of a for lack of a better term, like a, a stench, if you will, like mm-hmm. a, just a yep. you know, bad smell. And then the third thing is just making sure that we meet up with the dietitian for hydration tests periodically, just to mm-hmm. make sure that that will kind of confirm everything that, that, that you've been doing. So if I know mm-hmm. that I'm frequently drinking my water and I'm, and I'm going to the, you know, to the restroom, I'm sweating, and then I have the dietitian there to to give me that that feedback, to take that sample, to yeah. measure it, and say, "Oh, okay, well, you are doing well." Then it lets okay. me know that, okay, well, I can continue on this track. Yeah, perfect. You've travelled around the world, uh, so many different places. It's been quite a a journey for you, I guess. You really have 
fully taken aboard the recommendation from your coach early on about the opportunities that being a Paralympic athlete can afford you. What are some of the biggest challenges you face when you travel around the world? The biggest challenges, I would say you just, you never really know what things will be like for you as a person with a disability. Mm-hmm. We know and understand the experiences here in the United States. Yep. When you go to, say, a, a Beijing, China, it, it, it could be totally different. You go to mm-hmm. a United Kingdom, it could be totally different. So just understanding your kind of your space and place within these different countries and and cultures. Mm -hmm. I also think that even when you look at it from, you know, as we think about nutrition, food is different when you travel to these different places. And so I think that it's always been beneficial for us to have the sessions prior to us leaving the country, especially when you're going to a place say that maybe it isn't on the same level as uh, say a a united kingdom where your your Mm -hmm. food pretty much from us to uk for the most part you're going to be fine but you go to other countries and and you might have to make some some adaptations based on the quality of food the types of things that are uh you know consumed there etc etc so you know, making sure that if you are traveling to a certain country where you might need a specific, a specific supplement or, or, you know, specific vitamin, and maybe it's not readily available there, being able to plan for those appropriately and make sure that you have that so that when you land, you can continue the same regimen that you, mm-hmm. that you have been, been following. Yep. What's the worst food experience you've had? Oh, we went to, (laughs) we were in Finland. This was many Uh years ago. And it was just a totally, just a totally different experience. You know, they prepare their eggs differently. Mm -hmm. They prepare a lot of things differently. And so mind you, this was, this is also when I was 20 years old. So Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, eating the food and I'm like, Man, I don't want this. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we really had to, uh, I will say as a side note, our dietitians and, and nutrition services have evolved massively in a great way. So I think at that time, that was 2005, I believe. Have we had a, a Liz Broad or or a Sally or like it would have been, I think, a better experience because you would have been able yeah. to do some prior research and and plan out like, OK, guys, this is it might be a little different, but we're going to make sure that we you know bring in A, B, C and D so you can have a similar type of nutrition experience that you might have at home. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that that was a that was a tough one for sure. Just mm-hmm. food was prepared totally different. And, and when, you know, you're 19, 20 years old, you're not really trying to, if the food is bad, it's like, all right, where's the McDonald's? <laughs> <laughs> yep. 
what about sleep adjustment? Is that something that you oh, find yes. easy to do when you change time zones or is that something that's quite challenging? It depends on where we go. So when we go to, what I found is that when we go to the Asia region, mm-hmm. I have an easier time adjusting. I'm assuming it most certainly it has something to do with the you know, how many hours they're ahead. Now, when yeah. we go to Europe, that that kills me. Yeah, it is is so hard because once you land in whatever country it is, and let's just let's stick with the UK. I believe they're eight hours ahead of the the West Coast. Yep. So when we land in the UK, typically it's what seven a.m., eight a.m. And yeah. it's midnight back here at the States. So mm-hmm. for me, since I don't I don't really operate off of seeing and not seeing light, my body is telling me that you're tired. It's time to go to bed. Like we gotta go to time bed. Time to right go to now. bed. Yep. It it is so hard for me to fight that sleep without yep. being able to like have the, the sun to help with that circadian rhythm. Uh, and and most people, you know, you think, oh, okay, we'll just walk outside, and you can feel the sun on your on your skin, on your face, on your shoulders, etc. But that still does not work. I am mm. so tired, so it's it's really it's really tough. It takes me a few days. Which, so I appreciate when we leave the country eight nine days in advance to get yeah. acclimated for for the the competition for the event. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you just need more time to gradually make that adjustment. Do you then kind of set a schedule for yourself in terms of what time to go to bed and what time and an alarm to kind of get you up or how do you do, how do you make those changes? Well, <laughs> for me, I will once we get there, by that time they probably would have a schedule available. Yep. Once I identify when my event is, then I will determine my sleeping schedule. Yeah. Okay. And um, so it's it's most certainly, yes, going to bed at a certain time, waking up at a certain time, again, depending on when my, my event is, definitely combining that with a little bit of melatonin at times. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that, that has... That has has helped, uh, but for the most part, really trying to naturally get on that that on the that right different track. time frame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and because your your schedule for your events can be all over the place. Sometimes it's ten o'clock in the morning, and sometimes right. it's six o'clock in the evening, and so right. there's no consistency from one event to another as to when your event's going to be held. Is there? Correct. Mm. Totally. Yeah. Well, Lex, you've given us a huge amount of information and it's been lovely just spending some time talking to you about uh, your experiences. Do you have any specific recommendations for other athletes, maybe some visually impaired athletes who are younger and coming into sport? Any recommendations for them? Yeah, I would definitely say to tap into every resource that you can I think that when I had initially been introduced to the sport, where your mind goes to first, well, at least where my mind went to first was 
the literal aspect of getting on the track, getting in the gym, training. You didn't really think about, I didn't really think too much more about hydration or coming from North Carolina, the the food. <laughs> I was still mm-hmm. eating the same things that that I would that that I would eat if I wasn't training. And and so I think that when you can tap into those resources early and you can really learn at an at an early age that okay, the nutrition is just as important as the the literal training piece, then that just helps you to gain another competitive advantage, if you will, making sure that you can get the most out of your body when you need to. That is you know, that's really huge. Making sure that you can fuel your body with the right things. It ensures that yeah. you have great training sessions. But in all honesty, it just makes you feel good. And mm. and I know that me as a as an as an older athlete, some of the things that I've been doing over the past couple of years has been reducing or eliminating my consumption of of certain things. And so I know Liz, you remember one of the years I had stop eating the chips and yeah and, and so you know definitely did that to help my season but I know that someday I'm going to be done with athletics and so I would much rather try to get rid of that type of snacky habit now so that when mm. the amount of exercising that you do heavily reduces or 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 <laughs> becomes zero then you're not battling with, you know, some of the, the, the habits that you might've been able to get away with being though you were as, as an athlete, yeah, highly competitive, highly active, always moving around. Mm So yeah, I would just say definitely tap into all of the resources that are available to you because those things really help you to, to become better athletes. And at the end of the day, just, just better better human beings you just feel better cool um i can't ever imagine you being a couch potato no never i never will (laughs) always moving what about for practitioners um you've obviously over the years had periods of time as an athlete where you haven't had much uh, access to sports nutrition to uh, sports psychology even to physical therapies and things like that and now you've had you know, some pretty good access. Any recommendations you have for practitioners? I would say that as practitioners, as you work with your athletes in this day and age, it's really important to ensure that the athletes know exactly what it is that they're doing and what it is that they are consuming and how to consume it. So you think about an athlete who is blind and say, we're in the office, Liz, and I say, oh, well, I need some fish oil. I need some vitamin D. I need some uh, you know, turmeric. Mm-hmm. Those things come in specific bottles. So if the athlete can't see it, you want to make sure that you have some sort of strategy or structure in place to ensure that they know what is what and they know yeah. how much of each thing to take. So really being yep. clear on that information and how to disseminate that information to the athletes so that they are so that they can consume those uh, things independently. And you know, that, that, that just 
you know, goes into that whole independent achievement piece. Yeah. But um, yeah, just really thinking about ways to you know, how can I meet this person where they are and make sure that they truly understand what it is that's going on and how it's going to to help them and how I can yeah. equip them with the the best information, the best knowledge and the best resources to achieve their goals. Yeah. And, you know, because you've got people who can do that with you in the gym, for example, with the, the strength and conditioning coach, right. how, you know, give us an example of some of the things that they've done to get, make sure that you understand what position you need to be in before you say do a squat or. Yeah, that's a great point. So in the weight room, if it's, if there's a, a new lift that I'm being introduced to, could be a couple things. It could be them verbally explaining to me what positions that I need to be in. Okay, I want you to bend down. I want you to make sure that your knees are at a 90 degree angle. Make sure that you have your feet shoulder width apart. All right, you're going to keep the, the bar on your shoulders and you're going to grab it with both hands and you're going to move your, your hip back, squat down and make sure you stay in an upright position. So they're being very, very descriptive with their words. Mm -hmm. It could be one of those things where maybe you still just can't can't understand what it is that they're trying to get you to do then they might get into that position and allow you to to touch them so that you can understand mm -hmm. what it is oh okay well, no, all right they're, they're they have their arms here they have their knees here and their feet there yep. so now you're able to to picture that in your mind and those types of things mm -hmm. are, are are really huge because you are ensuring that the athlete is getting the information and making sure that they're able to do that lift and do it safely without any type of of injury. Yep. Yep. Cool. Well, Lex, we come to the end of our podcast. I like to ask my guests what their favorite food is. And I think I know what it was going to be, but maybe it's changed. So Lex, what's your favorite? That's always going to be French fries. <laughs> I knew that was what you yeah, were going to say. It'll always be French fries, <laughs> yes. But you've now put them into the treat category of occasional consumption rather than an everyday category. Correct. <laughs> Good man. Awesome. Well, Lex, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate uh, you spending time with us and being so uh, generous with your knowledge and, and your experiences. Uh, we certainly look forward to seeing what's ahead for you. I know you're still still competing. What's the big thing for this year? It is going to be national championships or maybe one or two Grand Prix races. We don't have our world mm -hmm. championships due to COVID, I imagine. So mm -hmm. it's making sure that I can stay in tip-top shape this year yep. and get ready for world championships next year. Yeah, cool. Well, all the best and keep up all the fantastic work that you do and hopefully we'll catch up with you down the track. Absolutely. Thanks, Liz. I think Lex really highlights the important role that artificial intelligence and smartphones has played in really being able to improve his independence and he certainly is a great advocate for, for visually impaired athletes and individuals being able to navigate life in a really safe and meaningful way i hope you've enjoyed our podcast please leave us a message or any feedback that you'd like to do 
or share it with your social media. I hope you join us again next time when we talk to Irina Boskina, who is a para track and field coach in Australia.